Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. And welcome to the Fair Perspectives podcast, the official podcast of the pro-human movement, brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. Today, we speak with Dr. John McWhorter, an associate professor of linguistics at Columbia University. Along with being an op-ed columnist at the New York Times, John has also written a number of books on linguistics and race relations, such as The Power of Babel, A Natural History of Language, and Losing the Race, self-sabotage in Black America. In this episode, we take a different track from discussions about his most recent book, Woke Racism. We discuss, is anti-wokeness the backlash against wokeness a new religion? How to engage with and persuade the elect? How grave a threat wokeness really is compared to other contemporary issues? Critical race theory in schools? And the consequences of centering race in one's identity? We also pivot to discuss language and semantics, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, the unpopularity of Latinx, the ever-evolving social taboo that is the N-word, and more. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. John McWhorter. John McWhorter, thank you for joining us on Fair Perspectives. Pleasure. Uh, so you have done, I think the proper number is a metric fuck ton of podcasts and interviews and, um, you know, everything having to do with your, with your latest book, Woke Racism, which we are all familiar with. It's the topic of the video that we just released for fair. And so we're going to try really hard not to ask you the same questions or at least find different angles with which to approach our questioning. Whoa. Um, okay. We're, yeah. We'll try our best. I mean, I've seen a good amount of them, but nowhere near all of them because they're, you know, they're it's, literally. It's yeah. 127. Is it really? It liter- oh that God. is the metric fuck done. And so <laughs> this is, I want to see these different questions. That would be great. But anything is fine. All right. All right. Well, we'll try our best. But one thing that I was wondering that I didn't see anybody quite ask you, um, you know, part of the thesis of the book is that this is a kind of religion or, you know, you, you go as far as to say that it is a religion. I would maybe quibble a little bit there, but I'm curious if you are picking up signs of a similar sort of religiosity from the antithesis of what is woke racism, this, the religion of anti-wokeness. I'm, I'm curious if you've paid attention to that, if you notice that, and if you think we should approach it the same way. You mean the, the religion on the right? Yeah, just, well, just, I guess, the equal and opposite reaction to 
the issue that you've been addressing, which is the, the you know, from the left, but there mm-hmm. is a kind of anti-woke manifestation of, you mm-hmm. know, oh, without a your doubt. opposition. Yeah, I mean, that is religious thought as well. I think an anthropologist would see the same thing. I often say that an, a naive anthropologist would see this current manifestation of wokeness as a religion. And despite the pushback that I've gotten about that, and with all due respect to you, on hell, I would still say that the anthropologist would feel that way and would distinguish it from an ideology. But they would also see another religion happening as well. There would be two. I just didn't find that religion as interesting when I wrote Woke Racism, partly because of where I am and partly because there have been developments, especially over the past about 13, 14 months that make that religion, I think, more interesting to everybody than it was when I was writing this sitting on a sun porch in August of 2020. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Yeah, there's religious thought beyond the zealotry wing of wokeness. Yeah. Well, no, I definitely agree with you, generally speaking. You know, I, it's something that I picked up on. I don't know if we talked about it on this podcast before, but it's something that I picked up on with just a phrase that someone said once many, many years ago. I think it might have been, it may even have been pre-Obama, but, you know, I was talking to somebody about what they were going to major in. And they were talking about documentary filmmaking and they were talking about all their, all their ideas and all their aspirations for it. And they said this phrase, it's going to be woke as fuck. And when they said that, for some reason, that phrase triggered something in my, you know, raised Catholic brain. And I thought, oh man, <laughs> this is bad. This is, I can see. Something's happening. happening. Yeah. yeah, I can tell. Yeah. And then, you know, you had this, you had, you've written about it and talked about it a lot, especially with Glenn. Um, so I'm definitely with you there. I wonder, I, I, I'm with you there, at least in terms of, you know, there's definitely a dogmatism. There's definitely a kind of faith-based sort of believe this, even though it's incompatible with this other thing we also believe. Um, but the institutionalization of it, I guess, is still where people might quibble. Um, sure. Yeah. It's funny you say that. What, what first tips you off? And it isn't in the way that we like to think, sitting with a book and reasoning it out carefully. There's always the spark moment. And I remember the spark moment for me on this, and I had no idea I was going to write a book about it. And it's going to sound small, and I don't mean it that way, but it really was a spark moment. It was at this table, except it was in 2014, when I realized, wait a minute. And what it was, was that ta Coates had written his article on reparations, which was a good article. But then it was just the response to it. And at one point, somebody wrote, and I don't remember who it was. It may have been Alex Perrine. Somebody wrote, it's looking like ta Coates is becoming America's most important public intellectual, America's leading public intellectual. And at the time, I was thinking, not him, that idiot. I didn't mean that at all. But I thought to myself, <laughs> he works within a particular subject, which is race. And that's pretty much what he does, which is fine. But I thought, why would you say that he, and this is just one person who said it, but I thought, why would anybody say that he in particular at that time was America's leading public intellectual? And I don't know who was, it's certainly not me, but I thought, why would you say that about him? And I thought the only way that makes sense is if that person is thinking of race issues in a way that only makes sense as something liturgical and religious. And I thought, wow, this isn't just a way of thinking. This has become a religious creed. It was that moment where I thought the only way I can make sense of that particular thing said about that particular person, which was fine with me, was there's a religion. Then a whole lot of other things started to make sense and, you know, everything fell into line. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and speaking, you know, getting back to the the question I wanted to ask you about this kind of anti-woke reaction to the woke thing. It it it's funny because pointing out that there are similarities pisses them both off, which is <laughs> pretty pretty interesting. I always say, you know, if the horseshoe fits, right? It's and just- it's it's a uh, but it's it's interesting that there is just as much dogmatism and just as much kind of things taken on faith. Uh, especially with regard to them, you know, whatever they are, the, these characterizations of them. So I'm curious if, you know, since you've written the book and, and you know, you've had these sparring matches with people about it, if, if you're finding that, if you're finding that maybe it's more interesting to you now. No, um, I'm encountering exactly what I expected, which is mm-hmm. that um, the vast majority of people, I think, see these sorts of things my way. My way of seeing this is very ordinary. There's, there's nothing penetrating about it. Then there are certain people who just cannot see it at all. And if anything, I've been bemused by the occasional interview with somebody who is what I would call an elect, and I don't call them that to their face, but you know, you know it when you see it, you know it when you hear it. And I think, okay, this is one of those people. And they're utterly incapable of seeing beyond their fishbowl. They can't see that there would be another way of looking at these things. And I, to them, understandably, look like a perfect ass. I get it. But yeah, I have maybe been reinforced in my sense that there really do exist such people. I knew more of them when I was at Berkeley, big surprise, than I have since. But I've, I've become reacquainted. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really like this part, uh, John, about you know, what you did in your book where you had all these uh, internal contradictions. I mean, to me... The catechism, right, right. It is... You know, I think I, Angel and I both share that we we grew up. I, Angel, you Catholic, right? You're you're you were brought up Catholic, but um, yeah. I, I was brought up um, in in an evangelical household. And I think mm. um, you know when when you go through that, and and you reached a point where you actually question enough of your of your epistemological foundation, and eventually leave it. You get very sensitive. It's like people who grew up under communism who are very sensitive to totalitarian impulses. Um, because of that former experience. And um, I, I think that's, that's what make, that's what kind of, you know, made me speak up about it kind of earlier than, than, than most. I, you know, it seems to me that what happened post George Floyd, that was kind of when it became kind of mainstream and, and, you know, infected normie culture, so to speak. But there were a few of us who were, have been talking about this for a long time. Um, I, I, you know, 2014, at least for me, um, I, I just read a book by Peter Thiel talking about the diversity myth as late as, as early as 1994. So he started seeing, you know, I remember this, that, uh, yeah. you know, whitewashing, <laughs> uh, not whitewashing, the opposite of that, where, where they were trying to decolonize curriculums already at Stanford. Um, they called it, you know, in the name of multiculturalism. And that was in 1994 when, when, when Peter and David Sachs wrote that book. So, you know, it's, it's been around earlier in, in academia, it seems. But that, that was, you know, I would say your reading, reading Woke Racism, it, it was, I, I did it in one sitting. And um, wow. very, yeah, it, it, it's so well written, John. I wrote it for that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. think you wrote it in one sitting pretty much. I practically did. <laughs> that was the most anger fueled book I have ever written. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say the space of time that I wrote it in. But yes, definitely, Melissa, this goes way back. And as an academic, I can you know, definitely recall when I was a grad student at Stanford, it had hit Stanford. 
although I wasn't as interested in the issues at the time. That's what led to, to Peter's, Peter's book. I remember a whole discussion there in 88 and 89 about what a racist campus Stanford was. And it was frankly, even then, one of the least racist spaces in the history of the human species. And yet there was this entire fake discussion going on. The difference between now and, say, 2014 is that there was a whole conversation then about this on college campuses, within which I participated lustily. But starting in May of 2020, suddenly it was everywhere else. And that's where things got really scary. I used to think, well, there's something that goes on on campuses, but campuses are really peculiar and you know, delimited places. With George Floyd plus pandemic plus social media, it became the whole world. And that's when I thought it's time to start having a new conversation about this. Do you, do you think that this, um, this impulse to, to, you know, decolonize, to, to, to say that some of the most progressive spaces, like even companies in Silicon Valley, for example, um, are inherently racist? I mean, I'm sure you saw the tweet recently uh, that accused NPR of being, of, of being like a white supremacist organization. Plantation, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, is this, do they really mean this or is, what is the nature of this denial of, of, of progress or, or denial at all that, that of progressive values? You know, I mean, I love NPR natively. I've grown up listening to all things considered first in back seats. And now I like a lot of those people. And so I'm, I'm reluctant to say anything here completely. I'm leaving myself open. However, I know what articles you're referring to. You're talking about the great resignations, et cetera. And um, honestly, I have never worked at NPR, and so I can't say from personal experience, but the idea that organizations like NPR are riven through with something that you could call racism, as opposed to maybe something else, language is funny, but that NPR is a racist institution, I seriously doubt that one could make a true case for that. And of course, people feel like they're not being listened to, and sometimes they're not. But I would definitely say that at a place like NPR, they're trying harder than anywhere in the history of the human species to undo that tendency to marginalize non-white voices. And I can say that without having been in the boardrooms in question. And so, you know, I don't want to criticize anybody Specifically, I'm not taking on Audie Cornish. I don't know what her experience has been. But yeah, there's an exaggeration. Really, what it comes down to, it's funny how somebody can come from the outside, kind of like this naive anthropologist I'm always talking about, and just cut through everything in, in a wink. I remember I knew a person from Japan who was kind of witnessing the race debate, and they'd been here about three years. And They weren't somebody terribly interested in this sort of thing, but they had known enough people of color to register something. And this person said, well, I guess what you're asking, John, is why do people exaggerate? That's it. It's not that there's no racism, but why do people exaggerate? And that question is what motivated my first race book, Losing the Race. Not that there's no racism, not bootstraps, just why do people make it sound like it's so much worse than it is? And I think that that has to do with the fact that one can be oddly comfortable in doing so. And I write about that in Woke Racism. People do that not to be manipulative, but because it helps you feel part of a group. It gives your life a sense of purpose. It gives you a sense that your life is a victory. And I hate saying that. I would not want to hear that if somebody said it to me, especially, you know, with my snotty demeanor and my imperious manner. Who is he to say? Nevertheless, I think I'm right. 
I think that it comes from psychologists who identify something called the victimization mindset. And when psychologists write about it, they're not thinking about black people, but it is a trait that I think black America, especially educated black America, this is more educated black America than the rest of black America, is encouraged to OD on. And I think it's time to start calling it out. There is an exaggeration. And I wish it weren't true because then I wouldn't have to say it. And it's not that racism doesn't exist, but we're certainly not in the place that we're often told. Any sensible person can see it. And, you know, there are people who think that me being black and saying that is setting the race back, that I'm not with the project. And, you know, the fact is that, yes, they're correct. I'm not with their project because their project isn't helping anybody. So that's where we need to go. Well, speaking of helping, I mean, to extend the religion analogy a little bit, I I feel like we're kind of in a similar space that we were in maybe uh, 15 years ago something like that with the new atheist movement. You know, you had all these books coming out, you had all these public figures coming out, they're being grouped and given cool names. And, uh, and they're all talking about this topic. And I think there's a lot of similar pushback, but there's also kind of an interesting diversion there because, you know, you, you've spoken a lot about how your whole, your, your purpose isn't necessarily to change people's minds or these people's minds because you don't necessarily believe that they will change their mind. You think they're, they're set utterly, ways. utterly unreachable. Yeah. It's hopeless. right. So, yeah. but I'm curious because, you know, we've seen from that past example of, of people slowly being argued out of extremism and their religious faith, at least being, being pulled more to the moderate side. And then, you know, you also have people like Daryl Davis, who we just spoke to, who have literally, you know, over time, it's taken time, but, has converted Klansmen. You know, he's the last person on earth you would imagine to be effective in that kind of scenario, but he did it. So I'm curious where, where that sense comes from and how big this cohort is that you think is unreachable. That's an interesting question. I've seen so few people convert. Maybe it's not because not enough people try to convert them. But yeah, I remember asking Sam Harris during exactly the era you're referring to, how many people's minds have you changed? And I was expecting him to say none. And he said, no, I have had people who've written me and said that I actually got through to them. My horse sense is that it would be even harder to convince somebody out of this thing I call electism, because with race, it has to do with you feeling like you are a good or a worthy person on this earth in what to you feels like a very urgent and concrete way. You see George Floyd's murder or you see that America is not completely unracist and you feel guilty about it, or you're afraid somebody's going to tell you you should feel guilty about it. And so you get your ducks in a row. When it comes to religious faith, yes, it gives you a sense of significance. It gives you a sense of moral purpose, but it strikes me that it might be in a more abstract sense. And a lot of the things that you're supposed to believe as a religious person are so utterly disconsonant with lived reality that I imagine that to the extent that either task would be easier, it would be easier to say, and I hate to say this for people who are religious, there is no prophet who didn't die 2000 years ago, who now loves you and you will live in his grace if you do the right things. I mean, it's rather painfully clear that you have to work hard to believe that given that you walk along the sidewalk and you see the world as it is. Whereas with this race issue, it's more concrete. There is racism. 
George Floyd was murdered. You didn't see that a white person gets murdered in the exact same way all the time. You don't see that. And if somebody says it, well, you're told that that's a bad person. And you know that your uncle is a racist. And so in a way, I would imagine it would be harder if there are people who can listen and understand that there are ways of helping the world on race without being a religious person. I am happy to see it. I would love to see it. It's a little early at this point. You know, who will realize that what they started to believe in about June 2020 isn't really helping anybody? It's, it's a little soon. I would love to see it. I'm open to seeing mm-hmm. it. But I am skeptical because I've spent an academic career and even before that dealing with elects and noticing that on that particular issue, they really are quite unreachable. On everything else, they're perfectly rational beings. But on the issues of race, you lose them the minute you say anything the wrong way. But right. maybe I'm being a snowflake on that. <laughs> well, I just think there, there's an analogous thing there, you know, just growing up with religious people and having those arguments and being the one where literally old ladies are praying over my head because they're so worried about the things I'm saying. It, it's a similar sort of thing. But I think, you know, how much do you think your conclusion is kind of putting the cart before the horse. Like just because you assume that there's, there's less of an effort, there's less of a connection there. And that maybe if you threw yourself wholeheartedly into this idea of, look, I can connect with the thing that you really care about. I also very much care about that thing. We just Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, there's a fork in the road in terms of what we should do about it. Mm -hmm. But if you threw yourself kind of, fully into that project, maybe you would have a different result. It's hard to know. I am open to the thought. I like the idea of the throwing. I'm going to hurl myself onto the wheels and levers. It's Mario (laughs) Savio. Yeah, I I mean it. I probably should open up more to that. I can be kind of an Eeyore sometimes. And also, most people don't know this, but linguistics is a science. It is a problem set subject. That's how it's taught. It's very strict. It's about problem solving. There's a part of me that thinks, okay, let's have the proposition be, even if it's somewhat idealized, that the elect are utterly unreachable, and let's just keep it clean and then move on from there. Life, though, isn't clean. I completely get that. I tend to think that way. I want to bring up also that, you know, Daryl Davis, one of the, we we talk a lot about about what he does, but the, the very first time it actually happened, and he actually described this on the podcast with us, it was because of music. He was playing, you know, he's a jazz musician and he was playing, I think it was the keyboard. And, and mm-hmm. a Klansman actually came up to him and said, I've, I've never heard a black man play like this. And that was their point of yeah. connection. And he kept coming into the bar uh, to, to every time he was in town to, to hear him play. And it's, it's contact theory, right? So the reason why I'm a bit skeptical and, and see what John is saying is, One of the things that this ideology does is that it is actually segregating us in a way. Um, This opportunity to connect, uh, to have contact with the other um, is, is, is strongly being attenuated. We see that with racial affinity groups. We see that with increasing race essentialism. And that makes it harder for us to relate to each other and have that moment where, where we can bond in the same way that Daryl Davis and a Klansman bonded. So, I mean, I, I do see why, it, why this is going to make it more difficult. 
but I also see why, you know, belief that, that it's possible is important if we are really to, to do something about this and overcome it. Yeah, it's funny. Just yesterday, I was reading about Daryl Davis. I forget why in my um, didn't sleep enough last night fog. But yeah, it's a very interesting case. But yeah, there is the, the balkanization. A quick example of that actually is this, the Harper's letter. That's the summer of 2020, where a bunch of people and I was one of them signed a letter saying that there needs to be more you know, open discussion, that people shouldn't be censored for their views. A certain kind of very intelligent, very well-meaning person started writing, sincerely assuming that we who signed that letter were saying that we should not be canceled, that we should not be censored, that we were a bunch of old white men, using a rather flexible definition of that, but we're all old white men who don't like it, that we can't say whatever we want to say, which wasn't even close. I mean, frankly, if you were asked to write that letter, probably you're out there enough that you can't be canceled. That wasn't what anybody was thinking. We were actually arguing on the behalf of other people. Now, I found that a very weird slant on what that letter was. And a great many people, including me, defended ourselves. Now, here it is two years later, and yet those same people still think the same thing. You know, I don't spend as much time on Twitter as I used to, but, you know, I take a look a few times a day and, you know, I scroll by and there are people who think that the Harper's letter was signed by these white guys smoking pipes who don't like it, that the coloreds are coming along. And there you go. Apparently, I'm anti-trans because of this interpretation of J.K. Rowling. She signed it, too. I saw two people having a very earnest discussion about how I am a I'm a turf. What is it? What is it? I'm a I'm a um, a trans trans exclusionary, trans exclusionary, radical feminist. And I've joined that Mm -hmm. league. I don't think I've ever written anything about that sort of thing. But and all of this was written by people who really thought of themselves on the side of the angels. And it's because they don't read anything else. I was thinking, how could you think this about me? How could you think this about the people who wrote this letter? They don't read anything else. And Mm -hmm. then again, people on the other side don't read anything else either. It's social media. It all starts in 2009. When Twitter and Facebook became default, the entire world changed. And you couldn't know it at the time. I remember being at parties in 2009. I didn't know the world was changing. Everything was changing that year because of the nature of social media. Yeah, I call it the boss level of discourse because you've got (laughs) all your handicaps and everything. They're all, you know. But I think, you know, one thing that that I think is great about you, one, one reason that I gravitated so much to your work and listening to your podcast is because I love finding people who are the exceptions to the rule. And I think there's something very disarming about being the absolute opposite of what people expect you to be mm-hmm. in these exact sort of circumstances. So, you know, I've, I've, you know, personally speaking, just gotten into it with Trump supporters, you know, kind of just going back and forth about that. Totally, you know, how did that often, go? Uh, interestingly, because my approach was to go out of my way not to antagonize and to go out of my way to make them know that I totally hear what they're saying and I totally understand what they're saying and I feel it and I I share some of their concerns. And then I'm already kind of in the door and they were, you know, they had their dukes up, they were ready to go. But because I didn't give them what they were expecting, suddenly they're like, oh, and now we're having an interesting conversation where they're curious. Um, and so I think, I think so much of it hinges on how we approach it. It's so easy to lose our patience. It's so easy to, you know, return vitriol with vitriol, but 
it's so easy to think that somebody who thinks in a certain way is maleficent too. Right. It surprises me how temperate, educated, rational people will truly believe that anybody who voted for Trump is some sort of moral pervert, that it must come from the most dastardly of motives. And you ask sometimes, how many people like that can there be? And they often <laughs> really do think that that's just the nature of humanity. And that's on the other side as well. They think, you know, they think that AOC is this satanic you know, presence. And that's really what, what they think. That we, We've got to get past that. But it's clearly human nature. And it feels good. It feels good to have another side to hate. We all remember how that felt in fourth grade. And, you know, as adults, we're really just big <laughs> children. And so there's a yeah. lot of that as well. But, yeah, it's a, it's a shame. But, and, you know, something else, Angel, is that um, I've noticed something. I wish in terms of having an argument with people, I wish people would realize this. What you do if you want to get somebody to think. And, you know, to tell you the truth, when I meet somebody who I can tell is a card carrying elect, I just withdraw. I change the subject. I don't even try. But if it's somebody who's in between, then you make an argument and you learn how to box somebody into a corner. And once you've got them in the corner, you just ask a rhetorical question and leave it. And the person will also often say, well, I don't know, with the implication being, yes, all people like that are evil. And you just leave it and you'll go, hmm, just leave it and then change the subject. Often that will change the person's mind. They're not going to admit to you that you've made them think in a new way. Who would? I wouldn't. I wouldn't admit right. to somebody that they had changed my mind unless it was about something I didn't think mattered. But when they go away, <laughs> when they're going to sleep, they think to themselves, hmm, it happens gradually, though. And then yeah. five years later, they'll say, well, it was that time when you asked me such and such. But you have to be patient. They're not going to let you know then. That's another thing right. that we need to realize about changing each other's minds. It won't even necessarily happen then. Right. Might not. Like they they might not even realize that it's happening. You planted this seed and it's growing in the back of their head. You yeah, but it's funny seed. because it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you wouldn't admit to changing your mind because I've seen you do it. I've literally watched you have the moment where Glenn tells you something, Glenn Lowry tells you something, and it totally breaks your brain and you go, wow, you know what? Yeah, you're right. And I, If it's him. <laughs> if it's him, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, okay. So That's if it's somebody, true. if it's somebody you trust, somebody that you can let your guard down with. Am I, am I doing f kind of false humility here? <laughs> no, in other situations, I don't want to admit it. No, mm. I'm, I'm human. There are times when yeah. I can tell myself you're pretending not to understand what's happening here, but I just mm. figure, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to admit it. But if it's with Glenn and we're talking about these sorts of things and yeah, they do matter. I'll cave like on the cops. Yeah, but I remember yeah. we had one in 2016 where I thought, wow, I'm wrong. And you just have yeah. to admit it. But with, I figure Glenn and I are trying to demonstrate something. And so, yeah, you're right. right. I do cave when Glenn gets me. Well, that's, that's, that's some of my favorite. Those are my favorite moments. And it's, it's so <laughs> wonderful to see them, you know, in real time because it doesn't usually happen in real time, right? It happens months later, you know, you know what? I've changed my mind on that. I can't quite remember why. And, you know, just kind of you evolve without recognizing it. It's like gaining weight. <laughs> I have to look at some of those things. I, I never watch yeah. them, but I need to watch some of those moments. Mm. So um, before we pivot, because we would definitely want to ask you some language questions and maybe bridge the two, okay. the two subjects. Um, but I'm curious, you know, because you've done 127 podcast appearances on this book, um, has, there, has anything given you pause? Has there been any specific pushback that you found interesting or... And, you know, you want to you want to 
think about it a little bit? I knew that I was going to be accused of not knowing enough about religion because I don't. I knew I was going to irritate highly religious people. I knew that was going to happen. I didn't know that so much of the response was going to be that these things don't matter because of what's coming from the right. And partly it's because what was coming from the right wasn't quite as strident two years ago as it is now. There hadn't been a riot on the Capitol steps. But some of it is, it still makes me think I am open to the idea. I don't like it, but I'm open to the (laughs) idea that if you pull the camera back on this, I wrote this book about woke racism because I didn't like it that Alison Roman got fired from the Times and I'm resenting some things that happened to me in the 90s and the aughts, et cetera. When really, what really concerned the country were things coming from the right that got really, really bad. And so I'm reading The Atlantic, you know, with whom I you know, have a working relationship, but I'm reading these articles that are warning us that we're on our way to civil war. It doesn't feel right to me. But then again, that's not an argument. And so I am working harder than I thought I would to justify whether these sorts of things are as important as the illiberalism coming from the right. My visceral sense is that what I'm talking about is at least as important, but I'm always trying to open myself up to the idea that really I need to admit that as horrible as this woke racism is, maybe the larger threat is the impending collapse of democracy. And I don't know where I fall on that, but I can't be as dismissive of it as I was in the book. By the time I did the final version of the book, there had been January 6th. That is something that happened one time. But the whole particularly heated debate over CRT and banning books as the result, what happened in Virginia, a lot of what's going on with voting law, more has happened. So I'm, I, I'm thinking and talk about how I don't want to admit that I'm wrong. Viscerally, I really am not liking the idea that I'm going to have to admit that woke racism was about a tempest in a teapot. I don't like it. But I'm trying very hard to make sure that I'm open to the possibility that at least woke racism and the other things are 50-50. See how I can't get past that? So (laughs) more of that than I expected. Yeah, I didn't know I was going to be fighting against that argument as much. Okay, John. So, you know, I always wonder sometimes, um, like you or or Coleman Hughes or even like Kamel Foster, what would you guys be talking about if you didn't always have to talk about race? And um, I mean, in your case, I know what the answer is because you've devoted your whole life to it. Um, And it's actually fascinating. I think if I could go back to school to study, you know, to a PhD, I would do computational linguistics. There's no question in my mind. It's a hot Um, And it's just really fascinating. I just love how linguistics corroborates the story of how humans came to be and how humans evolved the way they did. Um, And so we, we wanted to ask you a little bit about this other side of your, of your work. Um, okay. You know, tied a little bit also into some of the woke stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, recently, uh, I think it was uh, Thomas Chadenton Williams tweeted um, something about, he said that the word woke needs to be retired. He said he, he wishes for something fresher, something more specific. I know in the past that we used to use the word neo-racism um, mm-hmm. and, and then you started to pivot away from that. Uh, do you have any thoughts about these words and and you know, the euphemism treadmill, what to do about it? Well, you know, woke has changed so quickly that it happened basically underneath the book. 
woke to me still at heart means somebody who is awake to certain left of center realities. Now, though, what woke means to most people is somebody who is obnoxiously aware of those things and thinks it's okay to abuse and dismiss those who disagree with them. That's what woke now means. And that's why some people are disowning it. I think that's why Thomas would like to get rid of it. I think we need a word for the people who are obnoxious about wokeness, especially because my name, the elect, I can tell is not catching on. I, I was never, <laughs> never sure about it. And I can tell it just doesn't work. Madison Avenue failure there. So we need a word for those people. And woke works for me. Um, I liked neo-racist. I think I annoyed some people by pivoting away from it. I liked it for about six weeks, but I got too much feedback saying that it also suggested something about the alt-right, that it didn't seem to be aimed properly at a specific group, that it was too confusing. And so I decided to stop using it as elegant as I thought it was. I used it in a few substacks, and then I had to I had to pull away from it. It just it it muddied the waters too much. But yeah, I would like there to be a word for woke circa 2015. I I felt very woke, but I'm certainly not woke according to the definition now. Politically correct, 1983. I hate to say I'm old enough to remember. You could say politically correct, and it was barely a joke. It meant having a certain complex of lefty, knee-jerk liberal views, and you liked it that way. We need that. Right now, the language lacks that completely, so we have to say progressive, but what the hell does that mean? So, yeah, I, 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 I disagree politely with Thomas, though. I, I like that we have a word for the people who are annoying, but that wasn't, that, we can't have only that word. We need something for people who are more constructive and more civil. I wonder what you think, though. My, my default is always that the minute you create a label and try to apply it to people, you start getting false flags and you start getting friendly fire. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, immediately the label becomes a pejorative because the people who are against those people are the ones who yeah. use the word the most. And so yeah. I wonder if, if we should just get off the treadmill completely and <laughs> just focus on the specific behavior itself or the specific ideas, you know? If we're talking about somebody who's being obnoxious, we can mm-hmm. just say they're being obnoxious. If we're talking about a specific illiberal idea, we can talk mm-hmm. about how that idea is illiberal. What do you think about that? Do you Let's think stop we really coming up with the, the monikers? Yes, yeah. that would be handier because the euphemism treadmill will never stop. I would find it interesting, and this gets into Orwellian territory, but still, I would find it interesting if we had to, for say a month, just say what we mean without any misleading terms. And it wouldn't be perfect, but you know, explaining what your political view of the world is, how you think things should go, without saying systemic racism, but something more specific that would give us more to work with than something that abstract. You know, no mm-hmm. racial preferences, say changing standards of grades and test scores in order to ensure a certain number of Black and Latino people getting in. It will be a windy month. But still, to say that (laughs) as opposed to the euphemisms, that will never happen. But yeah, we don't have to have the monikers. And yeah, they're always going to dirty up. And I think it's becoming clear. Linguists weren't sure of this, say, 10, 15 years ago. Social media makes it happen faster. Woke just went faster than any word I've ever seen in my life. And that's because roughly of Twitter. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I could do without the monikers. I could do without the, the, the terms of art. Yeah. But I, I think it's it's simplicity and shortcuts, right? Um, <laughs> this is what the study of semiotics, or is that what that's called? There you go. Um, yeah. 
And so woke woke was just so successful because it was a shortcut, and it it sh- it's just one syllable. Um, it mm-hmm. sounds cool. It's it's a marketing it's thing, as you said, um, yep. and it's it's very similar to what happened with even critical race theory, you know, and the semantic game we were playing. Critical race theory is not being taught in K to twelve, right? And and so there was this, um, and and then critics were were showing uh, Chris Rufo's tweet about how we're going, this is our strategy. We're going to stuff all the bad ideas in, under this umbrella term. Um, and he was very transparent about that. And that was, you know, used as a, as, as a criticism against him. Um, and so I think, I think we're, we're, we're going to have to deal with this, whatever word that, that is being used, we'll, we'll just take on the same, the same characteristics as, as Angel mm. mentioned. Language is not efficient. In many ways, language is always messy and we just have to deal with that. And I think our our basic awareness has to be that words, meanings change, mm. that there's nothing that you can do about it. And that therefore you have to be careful about your your terminology. Yeah, Chris made it more explicit than sometimes <laughs> I wish he had. I understand what the idea was. But yeah, the whole discussion of CRT for example, is just an utter and complete yeah. mess. There are people who sincerely believe that you're talking about the work of Kimberly Crenshaw. And then there are other people who understand that what's meant is something more general. But then the question is, which of the about three or four different ways do you choose to characterize it? How many people have time to read, say, what Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay say about these things? Most human beings don't read books, is the thing. <laughs> That's why I hesitated to write woke racism. People read articles these days. And so to really learn the contours of it, to learn what critical theory is, you have to read their wonderful book. But most people aren't <laughs> going to do that because everybody wants to look at their phone. And so you end up having just this situation where language is inevitably messy. It's tiresome. It drags things along because we don't always even know what one another means. But yeah, and there's a lot, I feel like there's more of it lately, although I couldn't quantify exactly why it may be that I'm just weary. <laughs> But feel yeah, free to bash. It's hard to talk about stuff. And it's partly <laughs> because of this inevitable, messy, semantic drift combined with partisanship. It's a mess. I'm going to toot Angel's horn because he's not going to do it. But he wrote a great piece for Newsweek um, about the term Latinx. And mm-hmm. he said, call it what it is. This is lexical imperialism. That was in the headline. <laughs> and um yeah, I, I really like that term. I had never heard heard of it before, but when he said it, it was, you know, it's it's obvious. Yes, it was. And and you know, all the, the data shows that it's not popular among Hispanics in any way, shape, or form. Um, so what do you think about lexical <laughs> imperialism? Well, with Angel sitting here. Um <laughs> here's how I <laughs> no, it's not it's not bashable at all. The way I see it, because you know, the linguist is supposed to look at these things with at least some sort of fashioned detachment, is that this Latinx term is a register that is used among the hyper-educated, and it will continue to be. And if, say, Elizabeth Warren wants to appeal to that demographic, she will use that term. The idea (laughs) that it's going to spread throughout the Latino community is utterly hopeless. I'm not sure if it's a bad thing that there's a way that Latino people are referred to in rooms on college campuses, but That's as far as it's going to get. I live in a neighborhood, Jackson Heights, where my daily experience, I don't know what the demographics are, but my daily experience, at least in my part, is that two out of three people out on the street speak Spanish. I'm surrounded by Spanish all the time. I have never once 
heard a single person in five years use that term in this neighborhood. It has no purchase whatsoever. And I can just tell from looking at the faces of everybody here. If I talk to them and said, do you say Latinx? It would be like somebody asking me whether I call myself Clorox. Like it would have nothing to do with life <laughs> as we live it. And that's the way it's going to stay. It's not going to spread to any Peruvian restaurant. It's not going to spread nothing. Hopeless. However, I don't know, Angel, if it's imperialism. I don't know if there's anything wrong with it. Viscerally, I'm thinking it's this word that says that you're not supposed to think about the difference between the genders, which is very dear to most human beings on Earth, including, you know, 99.99 out of 100 Latinos. But I don't know if it's the worst thing in the world to try to push us beyond thinking of that binary. I get what the impulse is. Of course, I say this with my non-Latino self. I know what you mean. But so it's but another thing is that only two people are ever going to use that word. <laughs> but that impulse, but that impulse is based on a false assumption. And that assumption is about the Sapir Whorf hypothesis that just changing the nature of, of, of a language, fundamental nature, you know, let's exactly. make this ungendered, that that, you know, we can change how people view the world. I, I think that's based on a you wrote a whole book on this, uh, debunking. I did. And the thing is, what you can do is ooch thought along maybe a millimeter. With that, you think of another generation hearing the words used that way, maybe a millimeter. But if you really want people to not think about that binary, you have to change thought. Yeah. And so I think any number of non-binary people are making a much more powerful impact on young minds than not using O and A and you know, changing it to X. Yeah. Yeah. It goes against. Well, you know, that's the thing, though. I, in going against the Sapir Whorf hypothesis, in many quarters are considered a bad, bad apple. I don't get to play in any reindeer games in some circles because I will not say that a people's language shapes their way of thinking because there's this idea that every group of people has a lens that they look at the world through and it's their language that channels their thoughts. And the idea is that their thoughts are more genuine and more egalitarian and more perceptive than we Westerners, if we may, is thoughts. And so the idea that their languages don't channel their thoughts in that way is repulsive to a great many, for example, anthropologists and many linguists who are very anthropology adjacent. And so The Language Hoax, that book that I wrote, I like how it went over. I didn't get nearly as much shit for it as I thought I would. But those views are considered to be ones that make me, really, I, I don't get it. And so there are many people who are using Latinx who are thinking, yes, this will make people not see gender. And mm. you don't want to go against those people unless you want to fight. So yeah, we're <laughs> back to how, how it all started. Yeah. It's fascinating though, because it's, it's kind of, I wrote that it's kind of like a fight club-esque nod. Like, oh, you know, you're using the word, so you know we're in the club. It is it's kind club, of yeah. like that. And it's, it kind of has nothing to do with Spanish speaking people like me. You know, it's it's used to label us, but it's not really for us or to us. It's through us. And it's oh, kind you of, know, that's right. You know, yeah. yeah. So it's it's, but it, you know, the the thing that's interesting, and you know, in the comments of people sharing the article, I just you know would would browse through the comments, and people are going back and forth about who came up with the term and blah blah blah. But there was a really good point that someone made, which is that yes, the language is gendered. That doesn't mean necessarily that we're thinking that the whole world is gendered in that way. Like we don't think the sun has a penis just because it's a male, it's a masculine 
you know, noun. Like it, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't I'm translate that, that way, you know? Yeah. So it's, yeah, I, f- I forget who, who wrote that, but, but it, it, there's an interesting thing. It's kind of like this forced sim- symbolism, this forced symbolic move that doesn't actually graft onto any thinking or behavior. I mean, even, yeah. you know, you're not going to get the Latin community to, to suddenly not see in, you know, their, their, you know, often not misogynistic even, ways. Not even slowly. You know? Yeah. yeah. Everybody and, should think about the Banawa. They are um, an Amazonian group. And there are many fascinating things about the Banawa, but really the language and the reality really don't work at all. In Banawa, the default gender in the language is feminine. Like if you give them a typewriter, they make it feminine. If you brought like a giraffe in, it would be feminine. Anything new is feminine, not masculine. So Mm. feminine is the default gender. Masculine is just some other stuff. However, the Banawa themselves do not treat women in ways that any of us would consider at all progressive. They are rather brutal to women in many ways, which is true of probably most human beings on earth. Terrible things with menstruation, et cetera. And yet all objects that you just kind of bring into the culture, what they think of as the normal word is of feminine gender. So it's as if everything is like La Luna and yet you would not want to be a Banawa woman. That's how humanity really works. That's how much of a, a a non lockstep there is between those two things. Mm. But to extend some charity to the, the, the purpose here is so we want to change the the frame of mind, your frame of thinking. Um, that kind of touches on a bugaboo of mine, which is that people are are making a mistake in focusing on the word rather than the the you know the meaning with which we infuse our words, and that's why words change meanings and context changes meanings, and we kind of we understand this right, and so I you know I I personally I find the phrase the N word incredibly irritating. I find it infantilizing and infantile. Um, but the, the reason why we have that phrase is because people, maybe not consciously, but they are behaving as though they believe a word has magic powers. Like if I scribble it on a piece of paper, the piece of paper will slowly start to curdle, you know, <laughs> like they wouldn't say that that's what they believe, but they are in effect, you know, creating a world where that's the case because that's how they treat it. Right. So we have this phrase like Voldemort, we have to you know, we can't say the thing. We have to be, we have to create the word out of the negative space. Um, so I'm yeah, curious if, if is, you also feel that way. And I do feel that way. The yeah. word has become as if we were a group of people, you know, who, you know, have yet to see our language in writing and we're living on the land. It's word magic. And so we think, yeah. oh, those people are so different from us. Now we know what it is to be people of that, of that type because we have a magic word. and. I, yeah, I find it utterly infantilizing how people have gotten about it, partly because I go far enough back, you know, at this age <laughs> to remember as an adult when everybody knew what a horrible word it was in a thoroughly modern way. But within reason, you could say it in order to refer to it. And there was no epidemic coming. People weren't going to be using it anymore, but you could do that. But now the idea is there are people who often thought that they're doing me a favor by saying the N word as if if they said, you know, I heard a kid say nigger in class. They're thinking I'm going to be like <laughs> slavery. No, I'm just not. And I don't think most black right. people are. But yeah, it's very pious. And I wish it would go away. You have to pick your battles. And so I'm, I'm not going to shout about that. But yeah, I find it utterly tiresome, extremely fake, and that people are losing their jobs over it. 
is tragic. Just now, that's wild. was January 6th more important? See, this is the thing that I'm always worrying about <laughs> these days. Right. I don't know, but I know that I cannot abide this, this piety. I don't mm. like it. Well, it's interesting because the piety uh, seems to be inversely proportional also to progress. Like they're, you know, like by many metrics, um, it looks like the United States has been over the years an increasingly less racist society. And so it's strange that we are more sensitive about these issues, like the N-word. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it, like just saying it, even in the context where saying it is, I don't like saying it, or <laughs> we shouldn't be saying it, is enough to get Netflix executives fired. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's I, I don't understand it's how recreational. So it's recreational. It is a form of victimization mongering on both sides of the racial aisle that only works when things are actually going pretty well. If racism were really what it used to be, nobody would want to obsess about something so minor. It happens when things are getting better. And that's a phenomenon that I think the United States could even warn some other countries about, such as South Africa and Brazil, because I get the feeling it's sociologically normal. I'll bet there's even a literature about it. And yeah, it's, it doesn't fit the reality. Why are we so sensitive now given the world that we live in and how different it is from the way it was even 25 years ago. And to point it out is supposedly to be naive. You you don't know know, what could happen. One of the most interesting things that I get actually is um, my daughters are half white. They are um, seven and 10. And talk about Thomas Chatterton Williams. The whole issue becomes, are they going to see themselves as black women, as African-American women, or are they going to see themselves as just biracial mutts? Are they just going to be people? I am thinking that it's going to be the latter. It's the latter at this point. Maybe as they get older, they will identify differently. But you know what? I'll bet they won't. And some people I've talked to about this who are, you know, my age, maybe 10 years younger, earnestly say, but aren't you worried about the racism that they're going to encounter? They have to consider themselves black because they're going to encounter racism. You know, there are these, you know, two light brown colored people who live in a world in Jackson Heights. They're people of every single race on Earth, except roughly New Guinea and Australian Aboriginal. I don't think there are any of those. But other (laughs) I shouldn't say those, those people. But other than that, everybody (laughs) on Earth is here. And Dolly and Vanessa are some of those people. And they're just mutts here in the 21st century. Now, what is the racism they're going to encounter? And then all of a sudden, we're not supposed to think about degree or proportion. Maybe one of them, maybe both of them, every now and then will be slightly underestimated by probably an older person in some way that doesn't really matter. That's about all, frankly, I think they're going to get in their lives, as opposed to even mine. I encountered casual racism. They're going to encounter so much less. Now, the question is, Are they going to encounter enough racism that is worth a whole identity, that they're going to define themselves on the basis of it? And a smart person is trained to pretend that's not an issue. I find it so sad that when that comes up, the person is sitting there drinking their wine and being aggressively unintelligent. And I say, how much racism do you think they're going to encounter? And the answer is, well, I don't know. But the answer is, they, they do know. But they're encouraged to pretend as intelligent people in our times that my daughters are going to 
come home from school crying that somebody called them a dirty word and that's going to happen more than once and that they're not going to be picked for this and they're going to run into obstacles because of that, et cetera, because they are Negro. No, everybody knows it's not true, but you're not supposed to say it. That's a really fake kind of dialogue. And, you know, that kind of mendacity is part of what made me write, wrote, did I say white? Um, am I Elmer Fudd? It's part of what made me white <laughs> woke racism. It's part of what made me write woke racism because a lot of this is not real. I cannot stand the mendacity. I cannot stand the sorts of things I have to sit and listen to people say, and depending on my mood, nod or get ready for a slightly prickly discussion. So much of it is unreal. We need some reality. Think about what's going on on the right. See, I'm trying. We need some reality. And instead, we're encouraged to play act. I really, really don't like it. It makes you write a book one summer. There's also just, I mean, there is the matter of degree, right? Some people are zooming in so that the tiny thing looks huge. Mm-hmm. But the, but it's also uh, how we react to it. There's there's kind of this this dearth of stoicism. You know, I, I mean, I've experienced racism. I've had people say racist things to me, do racist things, and my response, even even as a young person, even you know, high school or, or younger, was just to be like, "Oh, you're an idiot." <laughs> Why? Like, but 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 the reaction for many seems to be to internalize it. Like, oh, they've exposed something. You know, they're, they're not saying this, but it's, it's almost as if they're saying, oh, this person has exposed something that's inferior about me and I'm upset about it. When mm-hmm. that's insane. There's nothing inferior about you. This person just believes crazy nonsense. Um, playing, so playing there's the that victim. too. Yeah, yeah, playing the victim in that way is such a peculiar thing. I suspect it's a very modern human phenomenon. But the person who does it, yeah, it looks like they believe that there's something wrong with them, which they don't. What it is, is... Right that you feel special in doing the performance of pretending that you're hurt. But yeah, I telling anecdotes about now doesn't work because people say, yeah, but you teach at an Ivy league school, you're successful, et cetera. But even when I was 10 or 11, my intuition was if you call me blackie at camp, my intuition was you suck. Like, and I wasn't angry. I went on about my day and I thought, what an ignorant little piece of shit. You just (laughs) in singing, people tell you, don't get scared of the high note. Pretend you're looking down on it. And so if you're going for this, think of it as looking down on it and it comes out better. That's true. And if somebody ever called me a name or implied something, I'd often think, boy, they're, they're no good. And it wasn't even, it wasn't it slam dunk. Only later did I realize that I was supposed to start crying and run and tell the diversity coordinator. And I think that, Angel, you and me are normal. This is normal. This is the way people (laughs) dealt with these sorts of things until roughly 1966. Everybody Mm. else is encouraged to put on an act. And yeah, I wish I wish that would stop. Why pretend Mm. that you don't like yourself? Why fake humility? Why pretend delicacy? But you can see that an awful lot of people think that in faking delicacy, it makes you noble and significant. No, it doesn't. It just makes you fake delicate. What's the point? Yeah. But there's this other step now where people grab their phones and feel the need to post it, describe it, um, because now you're going to receive the social capital for, for having been a victim and, and putting that online, right? Like, so if a racist a verbal attack, for example, I've experienced that, I lived in New York. My first instinct is not to grab my phone. It, it is not to describe what happened, but I did notice you know, during a time of, of hyper-racial commentary online, 
um, especially right after, you know, COVID lockdowns happen, um, that what was, you know, in any other context going to just be a hostile stare at a supermarket. Um, many Asian Americans were reporting that as hate incidents. And, and, oh, you know, this person stared at me at the market and, and, and there was this hyper awareness and, and encoding of incidents that were frankly innocuous as outright racist. And I, I worry that this um, rhetoric can actually affect how we view these things and, and in a way see more racism than there is and report it so that it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Definitely. I see that in people. Obviously, I'm not Asian, but I, I understand what you mean. But yeah, <laughs> I <laughs> am I faking it? Well, I actually um, I know a person, one of the smartest and funnest people I know, which is why it's unfortunate that the person is also very much an elect. And I don't know if we're friends anymore, but this is someone who sees racism everywhere. And ninety nine times out of 100, it wasn't. But it's this person's narrative and it's what makes this person feel centered. And yeah, this person is Asian, too. But I don't want to step on Asian. I want to keep it just obscure. Uh, It forms this person's whole identity about how they go through life. And I this person would pass it on to a child if they have one. And this person tells their friends about these sorts of things and their friends are reinforced in an idea that this person really is encountering that much racism. It's counterproductive. And this person doesn't mean any harm, but this person has formed a sense of self based on the idea that they encounter racism walking down the street all day long, every day. And they were doing this good 20 years ago. Yeah, it's a a self-fulfilling prophecy and it teaches other people the wrong thing. I worry about it. I really do. You know, um, before we before we start to wrap up here, you just reminded me of something that you've said often, which is that you think the sweet spot for this sort of discourse was somewhere in the '90s. <laughs> and you know, I grew up in the '90s. I was a you know, I was like a 10, 10 year old kid in the in the mid '90s, and mm-hmm. I remember seeing this comedian Warren Hutcherson, and he had this whole bit about how his father was in the Nation of Islam, and he would see you know racism everywhere. And he had this great bit about going into the grocery store and, you know, his dad would tell him, you know, you have to, you have to pay attention to how the white man's trying to put you down. You know, how come you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but Frosted Flakes are great. You know, how come, how come green olives are in a jar, but black olives got to be in a can? How come black rice is wild rice, right? It's like this whole thing. And it's like, you're too wild. You need to be locked up. You know, it's, yeah, it's amazing. And, but it struck me because, you know, thinking about that bit, it struck me. And then what you said about the sweet spot being in the nineties this is a comedian. This stuff was being played for laughs at that time. And now you can get a PhD in it. <laughs> like that's a, that's a crazy, that's a crazy jump, right? Like you can, yeah. you can become a New York times bestselling writer, just pointing out these sort of things that, that are almost equally as ludicrous. And how did we get here? I'll trade you one on that. Yeah. Because the mid 90s there were plenty of things wrong with the mid 90s but the mid 90s were better on this the tv show in living color had mm-hmm. this character that damon wayans did homie the clown and yeah. homie blames everything on racism homie's talking about systemic racism and the idea then was that racism exists which the show acknowledged in many ways but that to have this idea that it's the systemic oppressor of everything that black people do is is whack 
it, it's fake. That was correct. Today, homie the clown, you can get a PhD in homie the clownness. Nowadays, <laughs> that wouldn't be funny. There are right. people writing for major newspapers who think exactly like homie the clown. Something went wrong. And I think that the wrong is mainly these devices. It's the phones, it's the Twitter, it's mm. a few other things. But yeah, the mid-90s were better. And that was the time when you could use the N-word with taste and stop treating it like a, a, a taboo word. I like that better. In the mid-90s, a critical mass of people were admitting that progress had happened. It wasn't that we were there yet, but progress had happened. Then a certain way of thinking slowly started seeping in and taking over. The election of Barack Obama put paid to a lot of it. A lot of the debate that you're talking about, Angel, was, was conducted with the substrate of hip-hop. And whether hip-hop is good or whether hip-hop is bad, whether what was called conscious rap is telling a useful truth, etc. Obama is elected. No one ever talked about hip-hop in the media again to exaggerate. <laughs> but it also made some people think, well, wait a minute, how racist could we be if this man is elected president? But then social media starts. This is my oversimplified narrative. Social media starts the year Obama comes in. I think if John Edwards had been elected president, there would have been a Tea Party too. Everybody disagrees with me on that, but everybody thinks it's all about race. And next thing you know, you have years and years of people using those devices. Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, Ferguson cements a certain way of looking at things, and we're still dealing with it now. That's what I think happened. But yeah, in so many ways, I miss 1996, despite that it was technologically backwards. There was a certain <laughs> enlightenment yeah. in, that, in that era. Better movies, too. There were. Remember going to all those great movies? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun. Well, I remember. Yeah, I used to go to them in the theater. <laughs> yeah, that was around. You're not that old, John. Not, not quite. <laughs> no, I, I had a rotary phone when I was a kid. There was a rotary phone in my Do you house. remember going like that? Yeah. It was, a, remember, it was a good feeling. Yeah. I remember hating people who, who had zeros in their phone number because it would take forever. Because <laughs> you had to go all the way around. around. That's yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that in eons. Yeah. yeah. All right, John. So we always close the podcast with the, the final question. Same final question we ask every guest. Um, and uh, here it is. It's, it's, you know, our focus at FAIR is, is to provide um, pro-human alternatives to some of the issues that, that we were discussing here. Um, what does being pro-human mean to you? And how can everyday people take a pro-human approach to life? You know what aspect of humanness in that sense I would advise of people? This note of being the, the wise one is not my usual, but be honest with yourself. I think people should avoid this mendacity, this business of, letting people who have an artful way with sarcasm and big words teach you to not believe things that you believe. Be true to yourself and open up to a little. Not everybody can tolerate a lot, but open up to a little opprobrium, little name calling, a little pushback from the other people. Because frankly, in terms of being a responsible soul, people like that need to have some sense that there are other ways to think and or at best that they're not going to get their way just by saying what they say. And so I would just say that kind of honesty, if you, if you feel yourself saying something and you've got that little nag in your stomach, you don't really believe it, then go with it 
and realize that nine times out of 10, that little nag does not mean that you're a bad person. For me, I did this mid-90s again. Um, One of the lesser things about it was the debate over the end of racial preferences in the University of California schools. And what you were supposed to think was that what affirmative action had done at the UC schools was bring in poor Black kids, giving opportunity to Black kids who had grown up in poverty. I spent about a year there when I had my first job pretending to believe that. I wanted to believe that. Contrary to what some people think, I do not seek to be hated by other people and even less than. I tried so hard. And I listened to all the rhetoric and I interacted with Black students on campus. None of them were anything like poor, but I tried. I tried. And then finally, one day I realized I don't believe this. I don't believe it. It's hurting me almost physically. I'm going to start saying what I really think. I did. And that is the reason that we're having this conversation. Don't lie to yourself, even when it has to do with people who aren't white. Don't lie to yourself. That's my closest approximation to wisdom for today. Thank you. That's wonderful. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Thank you, folks. Thanks for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to join the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or on your favorite podcast platform and by following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. For transcripts of podcast episodes as well as access to exclusive Fair Perspectives content, visit us at fairperspectives.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.